We are back in 1 Peter again today, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. We have a good bit of ground to cover, so we're going to jump right into the text. If you want to follow along with me, it'll be uh, in your Bibles. It'll be up on the screen as well. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Thanks. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you be with us? Would you encourage us, Lord? This letter was written as a letter of encouragement, and I I can only imagine that the early hearers received it with joy. And so, Lord, as we receive it, would you give us the same response, that we might see Jesus Christ as our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in his name. Amen. If you've been to church for a while, uh, you probably know what you're supposed to do every time you read the Bible, and you see that word, therefore... You're supposed to ask, what's it there for, right? That's what you're supposed to do. And when it comes to the Bible, it almost always is, is we start with the glorious indicative. And what that is, is what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then what follows is the imperative, the do's and don'ts. You know, because of what God has done, now we are to live X, Y, and Z. So in this case, the therefore is alluding to everything we've been talking about the last three weeks in the verses 1 through 12. It's this glorious hope of salvation and promise in God as he loves us through his son, Jesus Christ. In light of all that, Peter encourages us to live as holy and obedient children. We've been given a living hope in Jesus Christ. We are to live obediently within that hope. And practically, that means we are to receive the gospel, we believe it, and then we live like Christians. If we take the name of Christ, this, you know, we're supposed to live like Christians. And our hope is therefore a response to something God has already accomplished in our place. The object of our hope is God himself. It's his loving kindness, his unmerited grace upon which we bank our hope for the future. Peter says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I, I love the way he phrases that. Preparing your minds for action literally is translated girding up the loins of your mind. Girding up the loins of your mind. That was a, that's a metaphor of the first century people who wore the long you know, flowing ropes, and the men would, would hike them up and put the belt around, or they would hike them up through their legs, wrap them around, and tie it. And you would do that if you were about to work 
If you were about to fight, if you were about to, you know, do something, to, to have some action. And we would say rolling up the sleeves of your mind. Roll up the sleeves. You're going to get busy. Fight or work. Action. And so he starts with that imagery of, of holy readiness. Like you want to get the folds of your mind wrapped up and get everything where it should be. And it's in contrast to a, a slothful drunkenness. He, he pairs it with be sober-minded. Those in the world who are drunk, physically, spiritually, often these people are living without hope. They are self-medicating for some reason or another. Spiritual drunkenness is a very real thing in our day and age. People who are just so clouded and their minds are darkened and, and they're just warped in their understanding. How many people are held captive with minds that are like this? Covered in darkness by substance abuse, by a worldview that is twisted, by evil influences. Peter had witnessed firsthand the demoniac in Mark 5. Do you remember the story? Jesus shows up and the demoniac is there and his name is Legion. And he's tied up. He's chained up by the graves and nobody really knows what to do with him. And Jesus is there and he sets him free. And what's the language used? Do you remember? The people are astonished because he's clothed and it says he's in his right mind. The Lord has freed him. And, and that radical transformation comes from encountering Jesus and what we would call being born again. It's a spiritual Christian sobriety. It promises hope, joy, peace, and love. It's a mind set free. It's not held captive by, by lusts or passion. But instead it's held by the Spirit. It's a mind that's being transformed and renewed daily, being transformed into the image of Christ himself. It delights in, in deep thinking and in meditating upon the things of God, the mysteries of God. In our modern context, the majority of the focus tends to be about emotions. And there's nothing wrong with emotions. That's, that's great. But it's not so much, is this thing true? People will instead ask, how does that thing make you feel? And if the church has, has become infected by this, then it's, it's a church that is being plagued and they don't realize it. How does worship make you feel today? Is that church boring or is it fun? Will they cater to my specific preferences? And if not, I'm out of there. And so we consistently see churches and I, my heart breaks for some of them because it's gimmick after gimmick after gimmick. They're desperately trying to, to pull at the emotions of these people and keep them from leaving. And what it does is it often leaves the mind stagnant and unengaged. But you see, Scripture never pits emotions versus the mind. It never pits intellectual against the heart. When we worship, we want both heart and mind to be fully involved. Now, us Presbyterians, we get some flack for this. And you know that. If you've been a Presbyterian for too long, you know it's all about the head knowledge. But God cares about the way you feel. God cares about you emotionally and mentally. He wants you invested with your heart in worship. You know, if you're here and you raise your hands during a song, if you shout amen, if you, and I, this may be going too far, if you clap, I'm not going to frown, I'm going to smile. 
And the reason, you know, we want worship to be normative. We want it to be orderly. We don't want it to be chaotic. But when, when the Spirit of God inside you takes all that theology and pulls it into doxology, into praise and worship, that's a joyous thing. And we felt that many times here at First Presbyterian Church, we, where we can't hold ourselves back and we just burst forth in praise. God's truth also carries with it moral obligations. Not only does theology lead us into doxology, into worship, but it calls us to action. And if the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, then you and I should do something about it. If we look around the world and we see that the house is burning down, do we sit there drinking our coffee? We should not be slothful when it comes to managing our households. We should not be passive towards sin in the world. We should love our neighbors. We should should work our jobs as glorifying the Lord. And you hear me say that, and I hear myself say it, and I say, well, that's easier said than done, isn't it? By nature in Adam, I am careless. We, we tend to be lazy. We tend to enjoy the shallow things. Both physical, intellectual laziness, it's always been a problem for fallen human beings. And as believers, we fail to read the word. We fail to pray. We fail to love God and neighbor due to our sin. And so the Bible here, Paul, Peter says, gird up your mind. Get ready for action. Push back by God's grace against the darkness. Go out into the world. He's going to talk about holy conduct, holy living. Go be holy because God's called you to be holy. And so in the words of Hebrews, we fight against the sin that so easily entangles us. We run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Next, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Part of our sanctification as chosen exiles, remember he called us that, We're chosen exiles. We're scattered, part of the diaspora. It's changing our mindset. It's changing our worldviews. We're not conforming ourselves to the old passions. We want to conform ourselves to the new passions. It's taking a nonconformist view of the world. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now that's an interesting word because Peter's talking about us. He's calling us obedient children. And then Paul says those who are marked by children of the devil, they're disobedient. And so obedience to God is a mark of the holy life. You know, Working with youth, I've heard a lot, you know, am I a Christian? How do I know I'm a Christian? And I always ask them, do you hate sin? Do you do you want to be obedient to the Lord's commands? Do you, you know, and I ask them this list of questions. And so we are to ask ourselves those things, too. Do we do we long for holiness? Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Now, I'm not talking about being nonconformist in the sense that we need to become Amish or we go join a hippie commune. You know, we separate ourselves in a monastery somewhere from the world. I'm talking about being nonconformist in our ethics. Our ethics push against the world. There's an example of this. There was a study done for a numerous amount of years, 1954 to 2003. And it showed that by age 44, 95% of Americans had premarital intercourse. 
And people would hear that and say, 95%? Well, that's the norm. That's the natural human behavior. And you see, the Bible is, the, is antiquated. You see, the Bible's wrong. Asking people to abstain from something everyone else is doing? But the Bible says in Ephesians 5.3, sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And so the world says, yeah, but everyone else is doing it. And the Bible says that's true. That's why you aren't supposed to do it. Because you're different. You're set apart. You're holy. You're chosen. The watching world rightly condemns us as, as hypocrites when we claim the name of Christ and yet statistically look no different from everyone else. And when we see the church again following culture rather than the ethics of Scripture, we should expect to see churches in decline. We should expect to see denominations splitting and falling apart. And sadly, that's the case. And that should break our hearts. That this disunity, this, this spirit of the lack of discernment, for, to put it nicely, is, is sweeping through our churches. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us with discernment, to help us differentiate. This is a pattern of the world. This is a pattern of the world to come. Conform yourself to this pattern. If you're a Christ, Christian, it means you have been born to a living hope. You've died to your old way of living. The new has come. You're still sinful, but you're no longer a slave to sin. You aren't perfect, but you're being sanctified daily by the Holy Spirit. You've been declared holy, righteous, and clean by Christ. And you are to live in that reality as a believer and obey. A tree that's firmly rooted and established in Christ will have no other choice but to bear fruit. It can't help it. It just bears fruit is what it naturally does. And so James can rightly say faith without works is dead. Because theology without doxology, without action, is not living faith. You see, that, that head knowledge has to trickle down to the heart. Heart and head, heart and head, it has to be working together. When Justin Martyr, many, many, you know, way back in early, early church, one of the fathers of the faith, Justin Martyr, he addressed the emperor Antoninus Pius. And he was giving him a defense of the Christian faith. And he was going through the normal Christian arguments and statements. And one of the things he said, I challenge you to look at the ethics of the church. Look at the ethics of the early church and how Christians live their lives. And I, and I heard about that and I thought, would anyone be willing to make that argument today? <laughs> would people look at us and say, look at them. Look at First Presbyterian Church. Oh, I hope. Oh, Lord, I hope that would be that would be a wonderful thing. Peter will say in chapter 2, 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. And so this is a high mystery of holiness. We are called to be holy as he is holy. And it involves our minds, our emotions, our bodies, all working together. Heart, soul, mind, strength, everything worshiping and glorifying our great God. Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God is holy. 
Everything he does is holy, 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 right? It's the triplicate. The angels in heaven rejoice that he is holy. It refers to his transcendence, his his purity, his otherness. He's in a category of his own. There is no other God like him. He alone is set apart as the only true and living God. And the reality of sin in the heart of every human being, of everyone here today, is that the reason evil, injustice, oppression are in the world at all is because of us. It's our fault. But when the heart of man is redeemed by God and purchased out of that darkness, the call to holiness shatters the old pattern of life. Rather than some guru, you know, sports star, celebrity influencer, we follow God himself. He is our model of conduct. And our holiness comes not from some checklist of righteous deeds. You know, there's not, you know, there's not just some, you're a Christian now, so start checking off the boxes. It's a life built and modeled after Jesus' life. And you might say, well, that's an impossible standard. <laughs> how, how can God demand that I be holy like he is holy when he knows I'm sinful, when he knows I I daily fail. But you see, there's a wonderful beauty and simplicity to the answer, and that's what Peter's trying to encourage us with. Listen to, to Jesus himself, Matthew 22, 37 through 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You want to be holy? There's two commands. Love God, love others. You know, I often hear Christianity is just a bunch of rules. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do, you know, it's not a laundry list of do's and don'ts. It's a life of of humility and love and obedience. It's a life of of freedom actually. You're you're actually freed from being a slave to sin into the courts of heaven. To be holy, then, is to live according to those two great commandments, to love God, love others. The opposite of this is to hate God and to hate others, which many people live their lives like that. They hate God, they hate others. Do you see how it should be impossible for God's holy people set apart, chosen to live comfortably in this world, to see this world as our home? Whereas one commentator put it, we are extraterrestrials at heart. Or better yet, we're neo-terrestrials. We're new. We're representatives of the new humanity that we now have in Jesus Christ. Pastor R.C. Sproul, many of you are familiar with him. He gives us a challenge by way of example. He says, what would happen if God erased St. Andrew's Chapel? That was the church he pastored while he was alive. And he pushed it into non-existence. He says, what difference would it make? And then I love it. He follows up. He says, I'm too much of a Calvinist to think that it would make no difference at all. I have to be optimistic and say the church always makes a difference. So praise God for that. But then he asks a similar question. If the New Testament church had been erased, what difference would that have made to the world? He says, we probably would not be in our churches today. And so it's, it's a painful question. And we ask ourselves, If First Presbyterian had shut its doors after Hurricane Michael, after COVID, like so many churches did, would anyone in town have noticed? 
What about your family? If you family, all of a sudden your whole family just up and disappeared, you were erased. What kind of impact or hole would be left behind by you? And so we're encouraged. Are are our homes strongholds of love and truth and beauty within our neighborhoods? Is our church an oasis for weary and heavy laden souls so they can come rest? Are we making any sort of impact on our community as a whole? And that's a challenge to us. It's a challenge of us to take this seriously, to live holy lives and to love God and love neighbor. If we come into this this room week after week and you let God's word wash over you and you partake together of this covenant meal, which we're going to do today, and you hear the gospel preached, but you do not put it into practice. What does Paul say? Then you're a resounding gong. You're a clanging cymbal if you have not love, if you've not put it into practice. When I hold myself up (laughs) to this standard of holiness, I I'm desperate for grace. I'm desperate. And I find myself crying out with Paul, Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Lord, who can set me free? My mind is not girded up. Lord, I need you to empower me to live a life of love. I don't love my neighbor. I don't love God like I should all the time. Who can free me from the bondage of sin and death that plagues me? And then I love Paul because he gives us the answer in the next verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, the perfect law of the Lord will utterly crush us unless we do what Paul does. And that's look to Christ. And so the Christian life cannot be about checks and this. And, and you, you know, you've done your scorecard. My holiness scorecard was filled out today. It cannot be about that because there's not an amount of holiness you can ever produce. To be holy like God is holy. You have to look to Christ. You need an alien holiness. You need an alien righteousness to be given to you. And Peter says that's exactly what's happened. If you are in Christ, you are called holy because God has declared you to be holy in Christ. Therefore, he says, act holy. Act in that present reality. Be Christians. Wear the name of Christ because you wear his robes of righteousness. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The Bible tells us in the great white throne judgment on that final last day, Christ will be our judge. And God's verdict for us has already been pronounced. For those who are in Jesus Christ, no condemnation, not guilty. God's pronouncement of judgment will glorify his perfect justice because he looks on Christ's atoning work, his merit of obedience, and declares us not guilty in him. And not only but this, but the faithfulness of God's people will also be put on display. We will all stand before the judge and we will be rewarded for our faith. That's what Peter's been talking about with testing our faith in the fiery furnace. And and even then, we will shine like glorious trophies to God's grace. People will look at Heath. Oh, what a sinner that guy was. And look at him shining. Oh, what a testament he is to Jesus and, and his grace and his mercy. And then think about your own life. You will shine like the sun and people will look at you and say, 
them, they made it, and you'll look back at them and go, you made it, and you'll both just celebrate. And Christ will be glorified. This truth should have the opposite effect for dread for the believer, because the judge of all the earth is our Savior. And yet Peter does call us to a fear, a reverential fear. He quoted earlier from Leviticus 19 to be holy as I am holy. And that was a key passage for Israel because they were, again, to be set apart. They had all these cleanliness laws. They were not to, be, to have soiled clothing or soiled flesh. And that was a picture of the spiritual defilement that was not to be found among them. The soldiers had to carry a shovel along with a sword because the Lord's camp was to be kept holy and clean. And all of that was pointing forward to the New Testament reality which we see take place in Christ. When Jesus once and for all washes his people, declares us clean, and does away with the Old Testament, all those cleanliness laws. That's why we're not bathing three or four times a day and being worried about that stuff. Because true Israel is now to bear fruit. We're supposed to bear fruit in an obedient lifestyle. It's not outside in, it's inside out. And the fear that Peter speaks of here is a fear born out of a heart of love, a heart of awe, a heart of respect for what God has done for us. Jesus puts it plainly in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 18, moving along, knowing you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. Or spot. Those who do not know God are characterized by both Peter and Paul as those living without hope. They walk through this world without hope. God has hidden eternity in the heart of all of mankind. And when mankind seeks to fill that void, it leaves them in despair. They can't do it. There was a brilliant theologian named Blaise Pascal, and he said this What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? But that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries to fill in vain with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. Since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. God in his infinite mercy ransoms and redeems us from that futile way of living, from a, from a hopelessness. He gives us a living hope. That word ransomed in the Greek is from the root verb luo, which means to loose, to unbind, to disintegrate. And it expresses an unbinding of something that was tied up. You were a slave to sin. Now you are a slave to righteousness. This redemption is a purchase made by Christ, and it satisfies the just requirements of the law of God. The wrath reserved for us was poured out upon him. And then Peter uses just this absolutely beautiful language here. The world regards very many things as precious, you know, jewels, gold and silver. But Peter says the blood of Jesus is precious. All those silly, valuable things, the things that we fight after and love and wars are fought over, worthless. He says those are perishable things. The one thing that is truly precious is Christ's blood. 
And you are blood-bought believers. That's not cheap grace. Came at the most precious possible price. Another way to look at this redemption is to see it through Old Testament imagery. And you know, Peter loves this Old Testament imagery. When we were going through the book of Ruth, we talked about that concept of a goel. There was Boaz and there was Ruth, and Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman, he was the goel for Ruth, and he was going to redeem her. And if you go to the book of Isaiah, you will see repeatedly this over and over and over, that God is our goel. He will redeem us. And the point of all that is that we cannot redeem ourselves. The best we have is gold or silver. That's the best we have. These are things of value corruptible. A life for a life was the payment required. Christ's blood given for our blood. Precious. Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. There's not enough money or power or fame. There's nothing you could offer me where I would ever trade you my, my son or my daughter. You couldn't offer me enough. To me, they are precious. They are of indefinable worth to me. And Peter says, the father gave his son for you. Christ's blood was precious and it was poured out willingly and joyfully for you. So that our debt could be paid. So that the the righteous could be exchanged for the unrighteous. So that sinners could be called the sons and daughters of God. The price of sin that lingered over your head is erased. And all of Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you as your own. How deep is the Father's love for us? How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Is that not good news? (laughs) Is that not a great encouragement for great sinners? This precious lamb without spot, without blemish, the Holy One of God, this perfectly obedient son, the great covenant keeper, shed his precious blood for us. That's a love that defies human comprehension. It's a message of grace this world is desperate for. They're without hope, and we have the monopoly on hope. And it's good news. It demands action on our part. If Christ has loved us with his precious blood being poured out for us, how much much should we go out now and love others? Last week we talked again about the continuity. There's continuity that exists between the Old and New Testament, right? The continuity is there. And and Peter's talking about Passover language here. Jesus is the spotless lamb without blemish. And in the Old Testament with the Passover there, the angel of death was going to, to come and he was going to kill the firstborns. But they had to do something. They had to take the blood of a lamb and wipe their doorposts with it. And if, if the blood was there, then the angel of death would pass over. And God says, never forget that event. Don't ever forget that event. Keep keep that going. And in the New Testament, we see the Lord's Supper, which we have today, being a fulfillment and a continuation of that event. The types and shadows were pointing forward to what we have before us today. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me until I return. 
His precious blood marks us with a sign and a seal of our belonging to Him. And so we look at this table and we look forward to Christ when He will return and make all things new. Last two verses here very quickly. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Day by day, praise God. The Holy Spirit convicts people of sin. He takes dead men and women and he brings them to life. He's doing it now. He's doing it as we speak. He does it all over the place. The Holy Spirit moves and we praise God for that. Our passage begins and ends with hope. It begins and ends with hope. There is endless hope for all today who call upon the name of the Lord. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a powerful moment uh, near the end where the great lion Aslan has given his life in the traitor's stead, Edmund. Edmund, who went to the White Witch, and Aslan said, I will take his place. And so the White Witch takes him and ties him to the stone table as a sacrifice. And Susan and Lucy are there and they're mourning and they've seen him killed. They've seen him shaved and it's a gruesome scene. And then we're told this happens. At that moment, the next morning, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end. And there was no Aslan. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked round there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown back, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. But what does it all mean? asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's the high mystery of holiness. That in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, by the Father's great love for us, us traitors, we're exchanged for the spotless Lamb. Of God. Doesn't that make you want to live for Him? Doesn't that make you want to strive to be holy as Christ is holy? Let's pray.